1: Welcome to episode 98 of the Observer's Notebook Podcast, the official podcast of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers. I'm Tim Robertson, the host of the Observer's Notebook and also the coordinator of the training program within the ALPO. Thanks for downloading and listening. The ALPO collects and analyzes observations of various solar system bodies and associated phenomenon and publishes detailed reports concerning these bodies in its quarterly publication, The Journal of the Association of Lunar and Planetary Observers, also known as The Strolling Astronomer. This podcast does depend upon donations from you, our listeners, to keep it alive. If you enjoy what you hear on the podcast, you can donate to it via Patreon by giving as little as $1 a month. If you feel even more generous for $5 you receive early access to the podcast before it goes public... For a monthly donation of ten dollars, you receive a copy of the Novice Observer's handbook. And for thirty-five dollars a month, you receive producer credits on the podcast. You can help us out by going to www.patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash observers notebook. And if you'd like to join the ALPO, membership begins at only $18 a year. For more information, you can find us at www.alpo-astronomy.org. And we're also on the Facebook. Just search for ALPO Astronomy. And this podcast also has a Facebook page as well. Just search for Observer's Notebook. If you enjoy what you hear in the podcast, please, please subscribe. That way you'll never miss another episode of Observer's Notebook. Episode 98 is coming your way. It's a twofer with Julius Betten from our Saturn section and Carl Hergenrother to talk about another great possible comet of the month. Stay tuned. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back to this edition of the Observer's Notebook podcast. And for the fourth time on the podcast, we have Executive Director of the ALPO, Julius Betten. Welcome back. Hi, good to be back. Yeah, but now, if people have not heard you before, why don't you just give them a little two-minute introduction about yourself?
0: Yeah, I'm uh, the Saturn and Venus uh, coordinator uh, for both of those sections for the ALPO, and I've been doing that for uh, oh, quite a number of years, uh, <laughs> since 1971. Uh joined the ALP back in uh, the late 60s, but I've been around uh, doing both of those uh Section since 1971. It seems like an eternity, but it's been great. It's been a wonderful experience. A lot that's of great. good observers out there, and both visual and uh, guys that do the imaging, which is really important to us as well.
1: Right. Now we're talking about Saturn today because uh opposition is just around the corner, which will make it visible all night long for uh, observers.
0: Right. That's on July 20th. Um, that's going to be uh, hopefully good weather for everybody everybody
1: now why don't you give us a little over overview of the saturn section
0: okay the saturn section we've got uh, quite a number of members i would say uh probably about 80 people that contribute um right now uh as of this date um over 400 observations into this apparition that started back after uh conjunction uh back on the 13th of january and this goes for a year uh until uh 2021, January 24th, 2021. Um, And again, we just mentioned that opposition is on July 20th. So Saturn will be well-placed for most Northern Hemisphere observers uh, uh, throughout the night. And uh, we've got a lot of guys in the Southern Hemisphere that have been sending in observations from South Africa and from Australia. Um, Guys in the Philippines, all over the world, have been sending in observations of this apparition so far. That constitutes all 400 separate images that we've been able to get. And we've gotten a few drawings and uh, full disc drawings and sketches. That's been really important.
1: That's great. And the podcast has listeners in all those areas too. So maybe they're listeners of the podcast.
0: Oh yeah, hopefully so. That'd be great. Now what Uh, type of
1: equipment do you suggest?
0: Well, you know, any telescope is fine. It's it's something to get started. I mean, you could start out with a four inch refractor, even smaller than that, and kind of learn your way around the sky. Uh, Saturn is not going to show the kind of details that people are going to look for until you get up a little bit larger. Uh, Four-inch refractor, maybe a six-inch refractor, or uh, you could, with a four- or five-inch MAC or six-inch MAC, something like that. A lot of our observers use SCTs, but there are a lot of them that are using MACs, and also uh, they're using uh, the Mac MACSuda are great scopes. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they make good planetary scopes because they're long focal length and, and really famous for great resolution. Uh, And then, of course, you know, long refractors take up a lot of space and take a really big mount. So, the Max uh, has really become really popular, as well as the Smith Cast.
1: Yeah, I picked up a six-inch uh, Explore Scientific Max Toutov last year, and I haven't had my refractor out since. <laughs> it's just it's a lot easier to set up. I mean, it's not as heavy. It's yeah. Yeah, it's a good planetary. scope. The only
0: complaint people have is collimation. If you keep the things collimated, yeah. uh Max handle uh uh they're pretty stable with 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 collimation if you don't treat them very roughly. Schmidt casses are a little bit susceptible to mm. uh getting out of collimation if you throw them around, but most people uh value their instruments and take better care of them than just kind of throwing them around in the back seat of a car, you mm.
1: know. <laughs> yeah. Now you said you've received four hundred observations this year of the operation. What have you seen that's new different interesting coming up this year?
0: okay, the thing about the northern hemisphere of Saturn the rings are tilted you know uh uh towards our line of towards our line of sight like is about oh I guess the uh tilt of the rings are right about uh twenty one point five degrees right now um and that means that uh the tilt of the rings it, typically are reach a maximum of almost 27 degrees that's maybe a couple of apparitions ago but right now saturn's well placed enough and uh, at opposition you're going to be able to uh, really get a good view of the rings in the northern hemisphere of the planet uh, with a large enough image size with enough apparition with enough uh, aperture to be able to see the planet clearly but some of the things that people have been reporting so far in the images has been a lot of white spot activity uh, hmm. on images that are taken in with RGB filters and some with other wavelength filters. Uh, some are doing infrared and, uh, different color filters trying to capture, uh, the details on Saturn. But right now there's been quite a bit of activity, uh, very small white spots in the equatorial zone. And, uh, A curious white streak in the equatorial band on Saturn, and uh, that's been something they've been following. That little white ripple that a lot of people are imaging right now uh, has been quite curious for quite some time. But the small white spots and dark spots are all of a sudden showing up on the north polar region of Saturn in the far north, of course, and uh, basically... if you measure the Saturnographic latitude about 74.7 degrees is where it's located. Uh, most of those white spots, but the images have been pouring in from all over the world and some are really high resolution images that, uh, we're going to be seeing more and more of those, uh, in apparition reports coming down the pike.
1: Yeah. I've seen some amazing photographs popping up on the internet with Saturn right now. I just, it's amazing.
0: Yes. Some of the guys have sent in some really high resolution images with larger, uh, larger telescopes. Uh, the ones that are doing the most detailed work, uh, 14 inch uh, SCTs for example. Uh, and then some Newtonians, and larger Newtonians uh, like a 16 a inch Newtonian that one guy in Australia uses. And, uh, it's been quite, quite, uh, quite fantastic. Some of the stuff he's been able to produce and, It's been really amazing seeing some of the stuff that's coming out of most of those locations. Now you mentioned, oh, go on. It's winter down there in Mm -hmm. in in the southern hemisphere, of course, uh, and they've been enduring cold weather trying to uh, get the imaging done, which is always a challenge when when cold hands touch metal.
1: Right, right, right. Now you mentioned color filters. What type of color filters would you recommend a visual observer use?
0: The Rattan series are the typical ones that people have been using over the years. They're available from various suppliers that you can get from Orion and other places. Um, your normal uh, supply houses do have good selections of filters that are available. Um, some of the filters that are most useful for Saturn, of course, are the ones that give you the best resolution. A magenta filter is quite good. And a, a, a variable density polarizer helps bring bring out details uh, kind of suppresses some of the glare from the rings, especially at opposition when uh, the rings are uh, tilted towards us. And you get the Seliger effects, which is a sort of a back scattering of light towards uh, uh, line of sight. So the rings look extremely bright at opposition. It's pretty fascinating stuff.
1: Huh. Now, are you receiving any visual observations? Or are they all uh, uh, digital?
0: Well, we've got a lot of people that are still doing visual observations, making visual numerical intensity estimates, estimating the brightness of the belts and zones uh, relative to one another. And uh, some people are still doing a lot of disk drawings. It takes a lot of patience to do that Mm -hmm. successfully, but we've got drawing blanks that are available on the ALPO website to download, and it makes drawing Saturn a whole lot easier if you've got a template to follow.
1: It rather it than does. trying to
0: do it freehand to get the right geometry for the rings, you know?
1: Yeah. You've got them all for the different tilts of the rings. That's really nice.
0: Yes, we do. And and if they don't cost anything, they can be downloaded from the website and people can print them out on their computer and make their drawings on suitable kind of a uh, paper that you, you can draw on. You don't want something that's too flimsy, but stuff that works pretty well. Uh, but yeah. People are still drawing Saturn, even though we're seeing all of these fantastic images that are coming in. Uh, we have that has not uh, lessened the importance of visual observation at all. In fact, it's fascinating to observe Saturn visually uh, and show it to somebody for the first time that's never seen Saturn through a telescope. And there are a lot of oohs and ahs where you show a, a bunch of high school kids and grammar school kids uh, the planet Saturn for the first time. I know I've had my telescope set up in my driveway. Uh, and I've had neighbors walking their dog and stuff come by and look at <laughs> Saturn and are amazed how Saturn looks. They said, "Man, that is amazing. I've never seen anything like that. I've read about it and seen it on the news and with the Cassini mission and stuff, but seeing it right. live is just amazing.
1: yeah, I got to always want to poke in the other side of the telescope and see what I have hanging there. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot of fun to show people who've never seen Saturn through the telescope before.
0: Well, the thing is that when youngsters see Saturn for the first time, I, I I remember some of the first looks that I got from some grammar school kids that had never seen Saturn before. And they've seen pictures of it in books, but to actually see it through a telescope really ooze ooh and ahs and something else. Yeah.
1: Now, do you do imaging as well as visual observations, drawings of Saturn, or are you just focused on one?
0: I do a lot of visual work and I also do uh, a lot of imaging as well. Uh, it's, it's a real challenge because a lot of the times the imaging can be tricky trying to set a laptop out, up outside when mosquitoes are biting you everywhere. And then no. of course uh, cold weather is a little challenging too, but I've got a company that comes to my home is called mosquito authority and they spray and I don't have any <laughs> mosquitoes much anymore. It works really well. Really? It's amazing. It, 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 they, they spray the perimeter around your home, and the life cycle of a mosquito was like twenty-one days. They come every twenty-one days. They spray our Don't see many mosquitoes at all.
1: That's pretty. I've never heard of that before. We don't have that. Yeah, Cal- I told
0: the late Don Parker about that. And those guys said we've got to find somebody that can do that. So they found some people that actually sprayed, and it worked well for them.
1: Fantastic. Whatever it takes, you know, Julius. Whatever it
0: takes, get the job done. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's good.
1: Now all the Jupiter observations are published in the journal
0: yes yeah, saturn's in the journal and uh they'll be coming up with another apparition report i've had several that have been submitted for publication uh that's, i think in the next issue of the journal we've got a venus and a saturn apparition report showing up from uh the 2014-15 apparition i believe is what's coming up mm-hmm. next and you know saturn has quite a period of observation it lasts about 378 days from from uh, conjunction to conjunction and so you've got a good period in there, surrounding opposition that gives people a good opportunity to view Saturn. So it's up quite a while. And and the big disadvantage that a lot of people have complained about lately is that Saturn's so low in the south uh, with a declination of approximately minus twenty degrees. But even so, uh, it really helps the guys down in the southern hemisphere. But us, but we sure. just have to be careful. We don't we don't don't have a problem with a tree line issue.
1: Ah, good point. Yeah. Now, how bright is Saturn this year?
0: Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's probably going to fall around about plus 0.1 okay. visual magnitude. Pretty bright. So that's, yeah. so that's pretty darn bright, yes. Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't rival Jupiter, but it's still uh, still up there, not yeah, is, far from Jupiter in the sky.
1: Isn't Jupiter and Saturn going to have a conjunction this year? Yes. Yeah, they're going to be close together. Yes. Do you know, what, do you know when that occurs?
0: I don't have the exact date, but it's coming up before too long. The other thing about it is is Mars is in their vicinity as well. So you've got Saturn, Jupiter, and Mars all lined up close by. Yeah, wow. So on any given night of observation, if you love watching Saturn or Jupiter or Mars, you can probably do some of that on the same evening.
1: That's true. It's a great time of year for planetary observers.
0: Yes, it is. Now, do
1: you publish observations anywhere else or just in the journal?
0: Just in the journal, uh, we send observations to some of the, uh, the with the ProM efforts have been going on since the Cassini mission. But we share all that information, and the guys have that data, and they're still pouring over a lot of the Cassini data since Cassini, uh, you know, came to an end in September of 2017. We still have uh, a lot of people pouring over the data and remarking about how much information they've been able to glean from the ALPO observations. Great. And from the, observers around the world from just not only the AOP, over the BAA and elsewhere.
1: Fantastic. Now you also have written a book about observing Saturn.
0: Yes. Uh, Saturn and how to observe it. Uh, it was written back in 2005. It needs some updating. We're looking at to, uh, to do a second edition before too much longer uh, in that same series. And that's going to be a challenge because one of the publishers is not having real success with getting things off the, uh, off the dock trying to get some things published, but we're working on it. It's probably going to be in another year. We'll have that released.
1: Oh, okay. All right. A lot of yeah. new
0: information will be coming out. Uh, that was gleaned from the uh, Cassini mission as well.
1: Oh, great. Great, great. Yeah. I'll put a link to that. I think it's available on Amazon.
0: Yeah. one thing too, I should mention, and I don't know if anybody's seen it yet, but it's a new uh, PBS series called the planets. And um, it's got a fantastic section on Saturn. Oh. Uh, and it takes you from the inner planets all the way out to Pluto. And it's got a wonderful, wonderful video on Saturn talking about the Cassini mission. And it even gives a plug to, uh, amateur observers as well. Oh,
1: great. I haven't seen that. I had to look for that.
0: Yes. Look it up. It's fantastic. It's on PBS and uh, okay. it's, it's very well done. Very well done.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, is there anything about this year's apparition with, uh, Saturn that you want to discuss?
0: that's about it. People just need to, uh, persevere and continue mm-hmm. to observe Saturn, uh, put up with the challenges you have to put up with during the summer months. And of course, uh, the guys in the Southern hemisphere are putting up with cold weather, Great. but, uh, just continue to follow, send in observations as they, uh, come uh, send them when you finish them. That's the main thing is, uh, that people need to do. So I can get, keep tabs on what's going on and compare some of the observations that, uh, Uh, other people have sent because comparative analysis makes a lot of sense. It really does. It does. Yeah, it does.
1: So how can everybody get a hold of you?
0: Well, I'm listed in the uh, journal of the ALPO. And of course uh, they can contact me by email. J L B a I N a at MSN.com. That's my email address. And uh, that appears in the journal as well. And also on the website. So that is, makes it convenient for somebody who would like to get in touch.
1: Great, and I'll put a link for that on the uh, on the show notes.
0: Yeah, that would be helpful, and people are welcome to to uh, to write, and um, I'll give them any guidance that I can. And uh, we've got a couple of monographs that are on the ALPO mm-hmm. website about uh, visual observations of Saturn. There are a few technical things that are addressed in that monograph, and um, it's it's on the uh, ALPO website as well. Uh, okay, it doesn't cost anything; they can download it.
1: And I'll link all that in the, in the notes so people can get right to it. Appreciate it, there, Julius. All right. Well, yeah, it's for- going to
0: be an interesting year. I can't wait until opposition to see what comes around and how many more observations we get this year. And watching all this activity in the northern hemisphere of Saturn because uh, it's it's been pretty fascinating. That's true. Now, do they know what what causes those white spots? Well, what happens is is that you get uh, you get a lot of convection going on in the atmosphere of Saturn. And, um, it's material that's welling up in the atmosphere and those, those white clouds, which are the white spots, but basically ammonia clouds because they're up above where the cloud tops are a little bit. And that's what you're seeing. It's dredging Hmm. up stuff from deep within the, uh, atmosphere of Saturn. Interesting. Interesting.
1: All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast again and talking about one of your favorite planets.
0: It's, just, it's It's been awesome. And I, if, I'll, I'll hasten to mention that Walter Ha, the late Walter Haas, who was the founder of the ALPO, often remarked that that was his favorite planet. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll always remember Walter making observations. He didn't do imaging, but he sure did a lot of wonderful visual yeah, work. He, Fantastic he did.
1: stuff. He did, yeah. Very good.
0: Well, thanks a lot. Okay, it was very enjoyable. I appreciate it. You guys take care. All right. All right.
1: Welcome back to part number two of the Observer's Notebook. And now we have Carl Hergenrother of the comment section. Welcome to the podcast, Carl. Thanks for having me yet again, Tim. Yeah, it's it's fun. You are one of the most popular people we have on the podcast. Every time we have you on, it's a peak in listening. So you got to come on nope. every month.
2: <laughs> well, at the rate we're discovering <laughs> yeah. good, or at least interesting comets, yeah. That, that's It's funny because 2020 was supposed to be a boring comet year. And it's been, I mean, in a lot of ways, 2020 is not that
1: yeah, no, I'm not going to call this a comet of the century like I have in the past. I'm not even going to call it comet of the year. Maybe maybe comet of the month or the week. I don't know. It's definitely going to be comet of the week. Okay. <laughs> Probably comet of the month. It could be comet of the year. We will see. All right. Now we're talking about uh, comet 2020 F3 NEOWISE. Yes.
2: Okay. So NEOWISE might be a name most people haven't heard of, and that's actually the name of a spacecraft. Um, it originally was the WISE spacecraft, which was the Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer, which was a uh, medium-class astronomy telescope that the uh, NASA launched back in 2009. It's actually a 16-inch telescope that observes in the infrared from the near-infrared, where you see more reflected light versus thermal, out to 22 microns, which is almost all thermal. So originally, this the space telescope was going to map the entire sky, discovering galaxies, quasars, and stuff, kind of like IRAS did back in 1983. Okay, But folks at JPL, who were the ones running the spacecraft, also realized that this would be a really potent telescope for not only discovering asteroids, but also getting albedos, how reflective the surface were are of albedos. And for about two years, this telescope was up there in low Earth orbit and observed over 100,000 asteroids and then was turned off in 2011 because when you go into the thermal infrared your telescope and your detector have to be very cold so the cryogen which is usually you know liquid nitrogen or liquid helium or mm-hmm. some combination of both ran out and so you couldn't use the of the four band passes the two thermal infrared ones okay but the two ones that are were in the near infrared around 3 4 micron were still usable and so 2 years after it was shut down late 2013 WISE was kind of reborn as NEOWISE, the Near-Earth Object Wide-Field Infrared Survey Explorer, <laughs> specifically to discover and study comets and asteroids. Hmm. And so you've got this mission that's now been going on for 10 plus years. It's discovered 33 comets and over 300 near-Earth asteroids. And so this most recent object, 2020 F3, the reason why it's called NEOWISE is because it was discovered in space by the NEOWISE spacecraft. Okay.
1: So what's it look like right now?
2: So right now, it's about a week out from perihelion. And perihelion's on July 3rd at a pretty close perihelion distance of 0.29 AU. Now, when Wise discovered it, it was back in the March of this year. And at that time, the comet was around 2 AU from the sun and a little under 2 AU from the Earth. So based on its discovery brightness, which, again, was only about 16th magnitude, if you assume that it had brightened at a kind of typical comet brightening rate of n of 3 to 4, then it would not have gotten bright at all. It would have been maybe peaked at 8th or ninth magnitude, which for an object that close to the sun, 8th or ninth magnitude is usually a bad thing. It usually means the comet's going to disintegrate. In fact, we just saw two comets in you know, Y4 Atlas and F8 Swan that were much brighter objects that didn't make it around the sun. But the thing about neowise, and this is similar to what we saw with Atlas, and Swan showed evidence of this when it was discovered, that it had this rapid brightening phase, where it was brightening at a rate of like n of almost seven or eight, up until the end of April, at which point it got the 10th magnitude. And then through the rest of May into early June, it brightened to up to 7th magnitude, where even though it was brightening slower than it did in April, it was still brightening a little faster than you'd expect for your typical long period comet. Now, if you're wondering, wow, there was a 7th magnitude comet in mm-hmm. of May and June, why didn't I see it? Well, it's probably because most of our listeners in the Northern Hemisphere, and this was a Southern Hemisphere-only object, at least okay. inbound. So around the middle of June, we lost it from the ground. It just was too close to the sun to be seen. But it showed up again a couple days ago in the field of view of the Lasco C3 coronagraph imager. Now, this is a imager like, Is
1: that like Soho? It is Soho. Yes. Okay. This
2: is an imager that's on the Soho spacecraft. Okay. And it blocks out the sun and it observes everything within about seven, seven and a half degrees of the sun. So the comet showed up on schedule and luckily for us, it was still there. It hadn't disintegrated Mm -hmm. or anything like that. And it was maybe around magnitude four when it first popped into the field of view. This was about June 23rd. And it left the field of view about four or five days later, at which point it had already brightened up to about second magnitude, which means it was still brightening just as quickly as it was going back to that late April phase, which is great. And so we have the potential now of a comet that is still a week out, July 3rd. Actually, it's even less than a week now. July 3rd from perihelion and could be brightening up to around first magnitude. If everything holds out. Now there are some caveats with this, (laughs) with the data that we got in Soho. Um, for example, I mean, it's, it's a wide field imager, you know, Mm -hmm. it's basically 15 degrees across. Um, the point spread function is pretty coarse. It's in space. You would think reducing data in space would be easier than on the ground. You're not looking through an atmosphere, but, Nothing's easy when you're looking only a couple degrees from the sun. right? And so the, astro- the photometry might be a little bit off, but still it's looking like a nice bright comet. And in fact, NEOWISE is kind of looking like everything we thought Atlas was going to be oh, really? before it kind of fell apart. Remember we were saying Atlas was going right. to hit first magnitude right. when it right. was really close to the sun and how it looks like NEOWISE is doing that.
1: Hmm. Now being a comet guy and being one of the, investigators of this type of thing how i mean with the past few comments that have come in mm-hmm. how reluctant are you and your group of friends to publicize a comment like this
2: very because it's kind of funny like with atlas here was a comment that nobody thought would be anything special rapidly brightened and then all of a sudden hit the news and mm-hmm. all the news stories, the first news stories were really crazy, saying, oh, they just extrapolated that brightening trend the perihelion and said so the comet was like negative six magnitude. Right. It was going to be like McNaught back in 2006, 2007. And then, okay, we are like, okay, it's going to slow down, but it's still going to get the first zero at the first magnitude. And then, of course, within days of it kind of being publicized in the press and us doing the podcast, it, <laughs> you can tell something was wrong. It stopped brightening. And then a week later. It's like
1: as soon as we published the podcast, it was like.
2: Yeah. And then as soon as Atlas breaks up, Swan pops up out of nowhere, right. rapidly brightens from invisibility up to you know ninth magnitude. And everyone's like, forget about Atlas. Swan's <laughs> going to be the one. It's going to peak at second, third magnitude. Mm-hmm. And then it had a big outburst and got up to fifth. And had a tail that was 10 degrees long. And again, it was all over the press. Here's the, the at least the comet of the year. And then it stopped brightening. And then after a week or two, it was obvious that it had also
1: fallen apart. These are actually comets for twenty twenty. So that kind yes. of makes sense, <laughs> you know, <laughs> with the way the year is gone. Right. Uh. So
2: it's interesting because you look in the Soho images and you know you measure the photometry. And so I've done a study where I've kind of measured the brightness of most of the well observed objects that we have at least were observed through their perihelion, and plotted them up. And for comets that get down to about 0.3 AU. And there's some famous ones that are kind of in that, that perihelion distance. I mean, there's some infamous ones like Austin back in 1990. But there's also Murkosh in the 50s, Aaron Rollins, stuff like that. This is an intrinsically bright comet. If you go by the magnitude, we measured in the Soho images. But the head scratcher is it didn't look like anything special in those Soho images there were much more impressive comets that we've seen in the SOHO images that when they got away from the sun were much fainter than we're predicting for, and much less impressive than we expect or we're hoping NEOWISE will be. So there's a little bit of a conundrum there. This object seems really bright, but boy, it just doesn't look that impressive. Now there could be things that we're not taking into account of like the viewing geometry. Um, for example, the comet has a very low phase angle, which means it's almost behind the sun when we were looking in the Soho images. So the tail is going away from us. Okay. Which may be one reason why it looks bright because the tail is going directly behind the coma. It's superimposed on it. You're kind of looking through a larger column density of particles Ah. and it makes the comet look brighter. So maybe the comet isn't as bright as we're measuring. Maybe it's like third magnitude rather than second magnitude. Still impressive. Right.
1: But not as. Are we going to have a position angle to the comet where it will show a tail?
2: We will. We okay. will. But the alternate is if the tail is being blown or from our, sorry, from our perspective, if it looks like it's being blown directly backwards, it also doesn't seem as long. It's foreshortened. Right, it's, right. it's a lot shorter. So right. you end up seeing a tail that looks much shorter, but is much brighter. And we'll know in a couple of days because Neowise will hopefully be visible from the northern hemisphere starting maybe around the 4th of July okay. time frame. In this, morning morning or evening oh sorry morning sky okay. Correct that. Said evening eventually okay. we'll come in the evening yeah starting around july 3rd july 4th we might be able to pick it up in the morning sky now it's going to be a bright sky um you're not going to really see you're going to have to pretty much wait until nautical twilight is about to begin to actually okay. pick it up on the third and fourth but if it really is sitting there in first magnitude That shouldn't be a problem, assuming, of course, you live someplace with a nice clear horizon and not too much junk, gunk, pollution on the horizon. Okay. But when it does pop out, you should be able to see the ion tail. Maybe you won't see it visually, but definitely imaging will show an ion tail moving basically almost perpendicular away from the horizon. But then the dust tail should actually be parallel with the horizon roughly so it'd be like one of these comets where you've got a tail going one direction the other tail kind of at a 90 degree or so angle
1: okay
2: so we should be able to see both so it's possible that as the comet pulls away and becomes visible from the ground the phase angle increases so you're looking at the comet more from a sideways angle so there actually might be more dust tail there than we were actually seeing in these soho images
1: and your gut's telling it's about first magnitude at that point
2: Oh, I wouldn't. My gut doesn't know what to think <laughs> way these comets are going. I mean, for all we know, it's, you know, the two seconds after it left the Soho field of view, it broke up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll I'll go looking at it going, wow, it's not quite as bright as we were expecting. Yeah. So the nice thing, though, about this comet is that even though it was on the other side of the sun as it was coming in, as it's going out, it actually comes a little bit closer to the Earth. Okay. So perihelions on, you know, July 3rd at 0.29 AU. And at that time, it's about 1 AU from the Earth. But it actually, that comet Earth distance closes to about 0.7 AU on July 23rd, when the comet's still 0.6 AU from the Sun. So for observability, it's going to be primarily a morning object through the first few weeks of July. But it's really going to be a horizon hugger. Okay. So you're going to be competing with, you know, bright twilight. In a couple of days, you're going to be competing with the full moon. Okay. And you're really going to need a horizon that has no obstructions greater than a couple degrees if you want to pick this object out. Okay. I was a little surprised when, you know, Swan had a very similar path, as would have Atlas had it still been, you know, a going concern. But Swan had a very similar path in the morning sky. And I, I've heard from a lot of observers who just couldn't see it at all. And even from my backyard, and I live this is Tucson, pre the the big fire in the mountain burning for the last week or two. I could watch the point where the comet should be. And, of course, Swan was a much fainter object, about fifth magnitude, sixth magnitude. I can see the point in the sky rise above the mountains at, say, five degrees elevation and not see the comet. And then as it got to six, seven, eight degrees elevation, the comet slowly came into view. So it had to rise above the gunk that you usually find down low.
1: Okay.
2: Now, hopefully, Neowise will be much brighter than that. I mean, Neowise could be a first magnitude object on the 4th of July. But again, you're going to need a really clear horizon to see it. This is actually a comet in the morning where it's a more of a benefit to be at higher latitudes. So if you're up at 40, 50 degrees latitude, of course, once you get 50 degrees latitude, the sky's never really dark. Right. Then right. again, you're looking almost nautical twilight, so that shouldn't be a problem. The comet will shift into the evening sky towards the end of the month. So by about, you know, July 23rd ish or something like that, you should start, be able to pick it up actually even sooner, possibly mid July. You should be able to pick it up in the evening and in the evening, it's going to be racing out of the basically off the horizon. So it'll be shooting through Lynx and Ursa major. Oh, Okay. By then, it should be a fainter object, and a lot of these comets do fade rather quickly, but it could still conceivably be a 4th, 5th magnitude object.
1: Okay, so still within the viewing of binoculars and good dark dark skies.
2: Right, right. And one thing we didn't mention is that its orbit suggests that it's more likely to survive perihelion than SWAN or ATLAS. (laughs) SWAN is what we would call a dynamically new long period comet, which means based on its orbit and its semi-major axis that we can measure before it gets into the the solar system, basically. So we can get what we call the original semi-major axis. It suggested that that comet was making its first pass through the inner solar system. So the first time possibly ever it got that close to the sun. And those comets have a habit of kind of head faking us into believing that they're brighter, more significant objects than they are, mostly because they become very active when they're further out, because they have very volatile ices that haven't burnt off yet. And so the comets look really bright further out. That was the problem with Kahutech, problem with ISON, right. problem with a lot of fizzlers, as well as comets that may not have fizzled like Kahutech, but were disappointments. And so, Swan was on an orbit that suggested it was one of these hyperactive inbound, first-time inbound long-period comets, and coming that close to the sun was prone to disintegrate. Atlas was different, and atlas had been around before. But Atlas also looks like it was a piece of the Great Comet of 1844. They shared an orbit. Okay. And so oftentimes, when comets split, the secondary nuclei do not last very long. Most cases, they only last a few days to weeks, but sometimes they'll make it once around the sun or they'll go back and then their next time at perihelion, they'll disintegrate. And so it probably wasn't a surprise that Atlas also fell apart. The hope was that Atlas would get a little bit closer to the sun before it fell apart. It fell apart pretty far out. Okay. Now, Neowise is what we call a dynamically old long period comet.
1: Oh, so it's been around before?
2: It's been around at least once before. Oh, okay so it's already burnt off it's really volatile ices which could be one reason why it didn't have much dust when it was coming in it was a very dust poor comet on on the way in it does look like it's producing quite a bit of dust near the sun and hopefully that will continue but for these dynamically old comets even if they're somewhat small or don't get very bright they usually have a good track record of surviving through perihelion okay so Yeah, so hopefully Neowise, you know, third time's the charm.
1: (laughs) Fingers crossed. Mm -hmm. We need a decent comet. Yes, we do. You want to bring up any possible comets coming up? Yeah, so
2: Neowise isn't the only comet that's out there in brightening. There's a comet that won't get anywhere near as bright, but might be easier to observe for quite a few people because it's not hugging the horizon, and that is 88p Howell. This is a short-period comet, goes around the Sun, Jupiter family comet, goes around the Sun every uh five, six years, and lately has been getting up to about eighth magnitude. We'll do the same in the fall of this year. There's another comet that was recently discovered that continues this trend of finding long period comets with really small perihelion distances. And that is C-2020 K-8 Catalina Atlas. Okay. And this is an object that's going to come to perihelion in mid-September of this year at 0.47 AU. Right now it's a runt magnitude, but so is Atlas, and so is <laughs> Neowise at Discovery. So, you know, fingers crossed, knock on wood, that this object will also experience a rapid brightening and maybe become, not going to say first second magnitude, but let's hope for at least binocular comet. Okay. And there's another one right now that I completely forgot about, and actually the easiest comet to observe right now, which is mostly from the Northern Hemisphere though, which is 2019 U6 Lemon. Discovered on Mount Lemmon. And this comet is currently around magnitude six and a half, magnitude seven, and is in the evening sky, not too far, a couple, maybe 10 degrees from Regulus. So it is competing with the moon. But that was a comet that was discovered near the end of last year by the Mount Lemmon Sky Survey as an inactive object. And it wasn't until a few months later that it started showing signs of cometary activity. And that one rapidly brightened. And now we have a nice six magnitude object sitting around a little less than one of you from the sun. So we've had quite a few comets discovered just in the past six months that have gone on to be quite exciting.
1: Good. Good, good. Well, let's see what else. Um, Okay. For your day job, you work for the OSIRIS-REx mission. How's that going? So Osiris-Rex
2: is going great, yes.
1: Um, I mean, it's kind of a weird
2: world we live in now. where We're mm-hmm. all working from home. But Osiris-Rex is in the basically the finishing stages of planning our sample collection maneuver, which will right now is planned for near the end of October. We're going to drop down to our Nightingale site and collect sample off-surface. And assuming all that works and works well, we will probably slowly back off from the asteroid and
0: mm-hmm. then
2: be on an, and then return to earth September 2023
1: wow so right now everything's been working great yeah I've been watching the updates on their website and it looks pretty exciting they've really high resolution images of where they're going to touch down and grab that oh yeah
2: from. yeah we were doing what we called uh, reconnaissance passes yeah. we flew down to within a couple hundred meters off the surface and then the most recent ones we were doing what we call we call a tag touch and go right And so we were doing these tag rehearsals, um, the closest of which got down to about 75 meters. And so we're getting, you know, centimeter size resolution. You're able to count the little pebbles.
1: Nice. So you have your your target all set. We have our target all set
2: and everything seems to be going well.
1: Yep. That sounds great. Well, Carl, how could people get a hold of you if they are interested in comets?
2: So there's the easiest way to get a hold of me is either through the website Mm alpo-astronomy.org you can also email me directly at comets at alpo-astronomy.org or my name which is carl c-a-r-l dash h-e-r-g-e-n-r-o-t-h-e-r at alpo-astronomy.org
1: fantastic and i will make it easy for everybody and put those links in the show notes and if you're on cloudy nights
2: just search alpo Ah. and you will find every month i put up basically a summary of all the comets that are visible and so we have a very active comment section where we talk about what we're observing and stuff like that so you can visit us there on Cloudy Nights as well.
1: Fantastic. Well Carl let's have our fingers crossed okay hope this yep. is a good comet and we get some uh, good images of it
2: Yep hopefully I'll see it before tomorrow. actually it looks like the monsoon will show up right with the comet so maybe uh, I won't be observing this one w- Wonderful. Alright. But we could use the rain
1: yes, so I'm not sure to complain can. too much Well it's been fun. Good chatting with you Thanks. All right. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Observer's Notebook Podcast. I really hope everybody enjoyed listening to Julia's talking about Saturn. And Carl, give us an update on a comet and maybe some more coming up later in the year. We upload a new episode of the Observer's Notebook every few weeks, actually on the 1st and 15th of every month. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please rate and review us. I really need the reviews, so when you're done with this, go over to iTunes and just give us a 5-star review and say something nice about the podcast. It puts us on the radar for other people interested in astronomy, and it helps us out. You can also listen to us on Apple Radio, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Spreaker, Google Play, Stitcher, and Amazon Echo. You can help support the podcast by donating to it via Patreon by giving up to $35 a month where you receive one year's membership to the ALPO and producer credits on the podcast. And with that, I'd like to thank the producers of this podcast, Steve Seedentop and Michael Moyer for their continued generous support of the podcast. Thank you very much, gentlemen. The link for Patreon, as well as the link for the ALPO, is down below in the show notes. You can contact me via email at cometman at cometman.net. Or on Twitter at, at observersnbpod. Until next time, my hope is you always have clear and steady skies. Thanks for listening and stay healthy.